to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, while you're turning there, I want to ask a question. How many of you would, uh, and you can raise your hand, uh, how many of you would say that you actually enjoy and look forward to change? Two hands, okay. How many of you would say that you really don't like change at all? That's more, you know, these are the honest people. Uh, you don't like change. I, I don't particularly like change either. Um, just a, a, a little, kind of, I guess, kind of a silly illustration. Every time that we wind up buying a car, maybe, maybe this is not a problem for you, but you know, I get used to all the buttons and the controls in this car, and then for whatever reason, we're going to get rid of this car, we're going to buy this car. Now I've got a whole new set of buttons to learn. Uh, I've got to figure out where they are and what they do. And, I, and we've had this car for years, and I still don't know what half the buttons do because they just don't matter. I, I, I don't want to use them. Uh, I, don't, I think we played a CD in that car once, and actually it was Sharon who played the CD, not me, and I still don't know how to set the clock, and I work on clocks, and I don't know how to set the clock in my car, so it's just, you know, from car to car to car, it just, it's, it's not enjoyable. I don't like change. In the book of Galatians, uh, the book of Galatians is about change. It's a... Uh, Maybe a better word, the word that I prefer to use is transition. Um, and by the way, the little girl that you hear down front that keeps interrupting me is my granddaughter. Um, and she can interrupt me, that's okay. Never mind. In the book of Galatians, I'm going to give a little bit of an overview before we actually get to the text that I'm supposed to be addressing. Um, but Galatians is talking about the time of transition in the first century from Old Covenant to New Covenant, from a Jews-only perspective, Jew-Gentile perspective, to world perspective, as far as the gospel is concerned. There are four groups of people that Galatians addresses. The fourth one we're not terribly concerned with, but four groups of people. They are Gentile believers, Jewish believers, the, fourth, the, the third group being the Judaizers, and then the fourth group that is always there, the undecided, people who are watching and waiting and trying to make up their minds exactly what's going on here. In regard to Jewish believers in the first century, they are transitioning from an old covenant perspective of the world that they have held for thousands of years to a new covenant perspective, the new covenant in Christ's blood. Now, let me say just, just as a point of clarification, I don't want you to confuse the phrases old covenant and new covenant with Old Testament and New Testament. Those are, they're not the same. The old covenant is not the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all these books back here. The New Testament is all these books up here. The Old Covenant is the covenant, when I speak of the Old Covenant, I'm talking about the covenant that God made with the children of Israel at Mount, at Mount Sinai given to them through Moses. This is the way that we are going to operate. This is the way the nation of Israel is going to conduct itself. This is how you're going to worship. These are the sacrifices that you're going to make. These are the men who are going to be your priests. That's the Old Covenant. It includes the Ten Commandments, which is a summary statement of the entire covenant. And this is how the Jew, the Jewish people, have understood the world ever since Moses. They are, these Jewish believers are now in the first century having to make the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. The Jews are transitioning not just out of a covenant, but out of a way of thinking, a way of understanding the world. And this New Covenant is not entirely new because it was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, particularly Jeremiah. He talked about a day when God would write his law on men's hearts. 
It was Jesus who said in Luke 22, 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We're not talking about a covenant that's, that's uh, maintained by the blood of sheep and goats anymore. We're talking about the covenant that that covenant was a type of. The old covenant was typical and pointed ahead to the new covenant and the real sacrifice for sin. You remember John says to his disciples, behold the, the lamb of God, God's lamb, not the lambs that you've been killing, not, not all these sacrifices. This is the lamb that God himself has supplied who takes away really, truly, genuinely takes away the sin of the world. So they're grappling with the end of an era, trying to understand how this new way of thinking, this new way of operating works. Uh, oh, I didn't know that you were going to be able to do that. Uh, slide number three is the slide that we want to look at. Thank you. Thank you. So ev virtually everything that they have believed and have been taught for generations is now being seen in a different light from a different perspective, which virtually none of them were actually prepared for. The, the Levitical priesthood is done. The entire sacrificial system is obsolete. The law of Moses is now superseded by the law of Christ, which is a hard pill to swallow. And what may have been the most difficult of all changes that that the Jews and Jewish believers had to deal with was that now Gentiles, even Gentiles, are now being included in the people of God. So it's not just for us anymore. They, them, they are part of the people of God. That's hard. They have understood for a couple of thousand years the command to come out from among the Gentiles and be separate from them. And now you're saying they're our brothers and sisters? How did that happen? So these are, these are some of the monumental changes for those within the Jewish culture who have believed the law. Now, Gentile believers, they're going through a transition as well. They're... Gigantic change for them, historic change. By the way, I've been fighting a cold for about three weeks, and I thought I was over it, and I'm not, so I'm going to take advantage of uh, the candy that I was given so that my mouth will burn. I apologize. Let's think about the Gentiles. For at least 2,000 years, the non-Jews were separated from Israel. So they had no dealings with them. But now suddenly, with the coming of Christ, now it's, it's not just Israel anymore. The whole planet has become a mission field. Overnight, basically. Paul, he tells us about the spiritual condition of the Gentile world, meaning when you think about the Gentile world and at the beginning of the first century, what, what percentage of the world's population are you talking about? Well over 99% of the population of the world is non-Jewish at that point. The whole world, virtually the entire world is Gentile. And he tells us of the spiritual condition of the Gentile world in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the circumcision by what is, excuse me, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. So these are references to Gentiles and Jews. You Gentiles remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the spiritual condition of 99% plus 
of the world. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, spiritually hopeless, and without God. That's as dark as you can get. And the transition that the Galatian Gentiles are experiencing is they're coming to grips with the fact that all of their ancestors, for all of their history, have worshipped everything but the true God. They have always been lost. They've always been cut off from the true God. Their religions have all been in vain because the objects of their worship were worthless, powerless, idolatrous, false gods. That's the history of the world. And it's actually a large part of the history even of Israel. If you look through the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you find out that a large part of their history was spent worshiping idols as well. Now, there is a, one, at least one notable exception to this rule of all the Gentiles being without hope and without God, and that would be Nineveh. The miserable prophet Jonah went to, Niz went to Nineveh and preached his miserable, uh, I think it's eight-word sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. You know, not seeker-sensitive, not user-friendly. Uh, you, you're all going to die. And what happens? Well, you read the text that everybody from the king to the cows is wearing sackcloth and crying out to God for mercy. That's, that is the, the exception among the Gentiles. The rule among the Gentiles is they don't know God. They have no hope. They're all idolatrous. They, they're cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. They are most definitely not God's people. Now, all of a sudden, the Gentiles can be saved. The Gentiles can become the people of God. How, how did that happen? Salvation has come to them by, by grace, through faith in Christ. And it's Paul who is, is teaching this, and many of the, the, the Gentiles are gladly and happily embracing it. And it is not a gospel of law-keeping and works righteousness and religious ceremony. For both Jew and Gentile, the gospel is about salvation by grace through faith, not by works of righteousness, not by law-keeping. It's a gift freely given to all who repent and believe in Jesus as the Savior of all men everywhere. It is, it is salvation for the world, not just for Israel for people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation and time. In other words, it's not just for the Jews anymore. And so this is the transition that the Gentiles and the Jews are experiencing. And then you come to the Judaizers. Who are these people? These are the people, they're Jewish. They've been following Paul everywhere he goes to preach. And they're handling the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant very poorly. They can't let go of Moses. They can't let go of Judaism. They can't let go of being Jewish. They're still convinced that only the Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, are even capable, even capable of being saved. Only Jews can be saved. So if the Gentiles are going to be saved, well, yes, you can believe in Jesus, but you've got to be Jewish. You have to be Jewish in order to be saved. This is what they're preaching. Now, that has not been stated as such in our study thus far. But in chapter 5, Paul clearly states it. Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you Gentiles, he's speaking to the Gentiles, if you accept circumcision, in other words, if you accept the preaching of these Judaizers that faith in Christ is not sufficient to save you, that you also have to become Jewish through circumcision, if you accept that, then Christ is of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated not just to be circumcised, but if you go down that road, you've got to keep the whole law. Well, who can keep the whole law? 
the Jews couldn't keep it. The Gentiles certainly aren't going to be able to keep it either. This is, this is their way of saying God only saves Jews. We are the chosen people. If you want to be in on it, you've got to become one of us. It is salvation by return to the law of Moses and the old covenant. It, it is an attempt to supplement the work of Christ. And that's a problem. This makes their message, as Paul referred to it in chapter 1, another gospel. You remember his introductory statement back in chapter 1? What did Paul say about these people? Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you before, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, like the Judaizers, let him be accursed. What does that mean? Well, it quite literally means may he go to hell. May he be condemned. People who preach false gospels and give people false hope and a false salvation are under the wrath and the curse of God. Now, you say, well, Paul, man, you know, lighten up. I mean, I'll, why, why can't we, why are you being such a hater? Yeah, we can't we kind of compromise here for the sake of unity and harmony? You know, the Lord wants us to have unity and be one. And what's so bad about imposing this Jewish ritual of circumcision on the Gentile believers? Well, because in doing so, you destroy the gospel. Men are robbed of saving grace. It is the institution of a salvation by one's own works, by one's own hand, and not solely by the work of Christ on our behalf. And so now you don't have a gospel anymore. You don't have salvation anymore. If we add anything at all to the sacrificial work of Christ upon the cross to save us, we're cursed. This is what Paul is saying here. Why? Why is that such a serious thing? Because it renders the work of Jesus upon the cross to save us as insufficient. His death is inadequate. It, he needs help. He's done all that he can do, but now he's dependent upon us to kind of fill in the last blank and then we'll be saved. It, it makes the gospel a pseudo-gospel that can't save. And these Judaizers, these false teachers, are promoting this false gospel that condemns both them and everybody who believes them. It condemns them. And that's why Paul is upset. And thus, the motivation for the letter. Now, having said all that, let's look at the text that I'm actually supposed to be preaching from, which is uh, chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Verses 15 and 16. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now here in this text, Paul is explaining the difference between the covenant that God made with Abraham and the covenant that God made through Moses with the people of Israel. You say, well, why is that even important? Why are we, why are we addressing that? Well, the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant, and it involves specifically salvation by faith. God has made unconditional promises to Abraham, which he will keep. And these promises, or this, when he refers to these promises, he, it's synonymous with covenant. He's, he made a deal with Abraham. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I promise I'm going to do this. That's the covenant. And this promise, or this covenant with Abraham was not superseded, not replaced 
by the covenant that came 430 years later that he made with Israel through Moses. The Mosaic covenant does not replace the Abrahamic covenant. But apparently the Judaizers, at least the Judaizers thought it did. And Paul says, even, even when men make covenants, once the covenant is ratified, you can't go back in there with, a, with an eraser and start changing this and, and moving paragraphs around and, and saying, no I, no, I really didn't agree to this. Well, here's your signature. Even with human covenants, once they're made, once they're ratified, once everybody signs off, once all the lawyers are paid, you can't change it. It is in effect until all the terms are satisfied. Well, that's with just a, a regular covenant amongst people. And Paul is saying the same is true with the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's still in force until the terms of the covenant are realized. And so the covenant made with Israel does not supersede or replace the covenant that he made with Abraham. Both are in effect simultaneously. Now, now <coughs> excuse me. In regard to God's covenant with Abraham, uh, Paul tells us here that those promises were made not only to Abraham, but also to whom? In verse 16. The promises were made to Abraham's offspring, singular. God made a promise to Abraham and the Lord Jesus at that time. This passage here that we're reading in Galatians is the Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of the Old Testament text found in Genesis. He made an unchangeable promise with Abraham and with his eventual offspring, Jesus. And it's kind of interesting to think, well, maybe it was Jesus who was actually talking to Abraham, who was making a promise to Abraham and to his own future self. Not a major point, but I thought I'd mention it. Verse 17. Why, why is all this important? Well, he's going to tell us. He says, this is what I mean. The law, speaking of the Mosaic law, the covenant at Sinai, which came 430 years after the covenant with Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The promises are not void. They're still in effect. For if the inheritance comes by the law, the things promised to Abraham that he would inherit, if they come by law, then it doesn't come by promise anymore. The promise isn't even necessary. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. I'm going to do this for you. The Mosaic Covenant, or what we often refer to simply as the Old Covenant, which includes the entire law given to Israel, not just the Ten Commandments, even though it came after God's promises to Abraham, has no effect upon that earlier covenant. The law given to Moses doesn't cancel the promises to Abraham, which is apparently what the Judaizers must have believed. I, I, can, I believe they thought, well, God made a covenant with our father Abraham, but now we have a better covenant with Moses, and we have the law. Yeah, that, that covenant was good, but this one's better. No. For if the inheritance which God promised unconditionally to Abraham and Christ came by means of keeping the Mosaic law, then it becomes an inheritance earned by law keeping and not based upon the promise, not based upon the faithfulness of God to do what he said. I can get the inheritance myself through my own efforts. Doesn't matter whether God promised it or not, I can get it. No. And he uses the word inheritance. What inheritance? What, are we, what is he even talking about? 
his audience would have understood this, but sometimes we get, you know, as we're reading through this, we have to stop and say, wait, 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 inheritance? What inheritance? What promise? What is the promise that he made? What's Paul talking about? What, what inheritance did God promise to Abraham and to Christ? Well, again, the New Testament tells us what is involved in that promised inheritance. And what is it? The entire world, everything. We as the people of God inherit everything. In Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed what? The heir of pretty much everything. No, that's not what it says. Jesus is the heir of everything. Through whom also he created the world. The promise to Abraham that he and his offspring would inherit the land of Canaan, or the promised land, was intended to be a type of his and our inheritance of heaven itself, of heaven and earth. Elsewhere, we read that Abraham's offspring will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. This one will be destroyed, we'll be given another one. You know, I'm, I'm really not concerned about global warming. We get a new, the globe is going to warm at very high temperatures and melt with fervent heat and then we get another one, okay? We inherit everything. That was the nature of the promise that God made to Abraham, to his offspring with a capital O, Jesus, and to all of those who are in Christ. The promise of an inheritance to Abraham and his offspring stands. Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? So why, why did God give the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And I was thinking about asking Pastor Dave to come explain this passage. This, this is a tough one, and I'm not sure that I understand it uh, fully, but I'm going to give it a shot. So if, if the Mosaic Covenant does not annul the Abrahamic Covenant, then what was its purpose? Why was it necessary? Well, the next phrase is very interesting. It says the law, meaning the old covenant, was added after the covenant with Abraham because of transgressions. God made that covenant with Israel at Sinai because of transgressions. Now, I believe there, at least in my mind, there are two possible ways of understanding this phrase. Either, and there may be others, but these are the two that I came up with. Either the law was added in order to make the sinfulness of Israel even more obvious so that they would be moved to cry out to God for mercy because they knew that they couldn't keep the law, that that didn't happen. In fact, on several occasions we read in the text that the people of Israel said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And that's that's almost laughable, right? Look at the history of Israel. All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. How many pages in the Old Testament do we see them doing that? Four, maybe? I mean, they were, they were perpetually disobedient to God. So the law did not drive them to cry out for mercy from God, even though it should have. That, that's the first possible interpretation of that phrase, that the law was added because of transgression. Or it could be that God added the law and imposed it upon Israel as a means by which he would be able to coexist with them in their transgression. The sacrificial system, the priesthood, this, this enabled God to be able to tolerate them because they were constantly at odds with God, constantly breaking the law of God. And so 
it's an exercise in the patience of God for many years while the law and all of the sacrificial system is constantly pointing to Christ. It's all typological, all pointing to Jesus in the coming, in the future. Now, I want you to notice the very next word. The text says that the law was added because of transgressions until. What does the word until imply? The law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. What promise? Made, God made a promise to what offspring? Christ. The law was added because of transgression until Christ should come to whom the promise had been made. This word, until reveals the temporary nature of the Old Covenant. It's not the Abrahamic Covenant that's temporary. It's the Mosaic Covenant that's temporary. It's in effect until the coming of Christ. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Here again, there's another passage that's, that's difficult. Even though the Mosaic Covenant was instituted, or as the text says, put in place through angels, it is still a temporary covenant, a temporary law. It was put in place by angels and an intermediary. And verse 20 seems, and this is my opinion, this is not thus saith the Lord, so you can take it or leave it, okay? It's, this is just me talking. In my opinion, verse 20 seems to be kind of a tip of the hat of Paul toward Jesus as that intermediary back at Mount Sinai between God and Israel. That he was the angel of the Lord, the intermediary that stood between heaven and earth, between God on Mount Sinai and the people in the camp. That, that go-between during the giving of the law to Israel and almost in passing, Paul kind of sneaks this word about the unity of God. He sneaks that in there, even though he says an intermediary implies more than one. So to avoid confusion, even though the angel of the Lord, or more specifically, the Lord Jesus, is acting as in an intermediary role here in the giving of the law, we know, and Paul knows, that he and God are one. That Jesus is God, the Father is God. We're not talking about two gods. We're talking about we're talking about two persons, but we're talking about one God. And he doesn't he doesn't park there. He just says that and then keeps moving. Verse twenty one. Paul asks the question: Is the law then contrary to the promises of God, meaning the promises given to Abraham? No. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law, right? If you can get righteousness by keeping the law, then God would have given us a law for that purpose. If you keep these laws, you get eternal life. There was never a law given to accomplish that. It is not possible. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The promise of the eternal inheritance, the promise of eternal life, is given to those who believe, not because they keep the law, but because they believe in Christ. So the covenant made with Israel through Moses, Paul says here, established the condemnation of, Paul says, everything. Everything's under a curse. And the law establishes that. I remember years ago I asked the question, so how, uh, of my, my congregation in Pennsylvania, I said, how, how is it that the Old Testament saints were saved? 
And one lady immediately, she said, by keeping the law. That's the wrong answer. Who, who is saved by keeping the law? Nobody. The law is not given as a means of salvation. The law is given as a sign of condemnation, that you need mercy, that you can't do this, that you can't satisfy God, that regardless of what you do, he's never going to grant you eternal life based on you, on your performance, on what you've done, on how good you are. That is not going to happen. The law is never a means of salvation. It wasn't given in order to impart life to, to those who kept it because no one could keep it. It was for the purpose of condemnation in order to make salvation by faith all the more real, all the more desirable, and all the more necessary. It should have driven Israel to say, we can't do this, Lord have mercy. If this is the standard, if this is what we have to do in order to inherit eternal life, we give up now. This is pointless. We know, we know what we're made of. Moses is coming down off the mount, right, with the Ten Commandments, and what's going on? They're worship, they've broken it before they even got it. It's, it's a done deal before they even receive the covenant. And, and this is typical of the people of Israel, even after they got the covenant. Ultimately, the law was given in order to enhance the message of salvation by faith. In fact, as we, as we read recently in our Wednesday night study, Paul refers to the covenant given through Moses in explicitly negative terms. Look at, well, you don't have to turn to it, it's up there. 2 Corinthians 3, look at this. And it's a rather long passage. I'm going to read several slides here for you. But breaking right into the context, he says, Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we, Paul and his co-workers, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be members, uh, excuse me, ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I would say that that is a negative way of referring to the Old Covenant. The letter kills, right? He keeps going. This is, that's not all. Look at this. He says, now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, what is he talking about? The Old Covenant. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the old covenant, the ministry of condemnation. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, and it was, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what is permanent have glory. If what was being brought to an end well, that's what Paul just said earlier, that it's in effect until the coming of the offspring of Abraham, in other words, Christ. So, notice what, Paul's, what Paul says here about the Old Covenant. He refers to it as the letter that kills, the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, the ministry of condemnation. This is the nature of the covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And in Galatians, the Judaizers want to go back to that. They want to go back to that old, deadly covenant that cannot grant life, that, that only brings condemnation, and they want to take the Gentile believers with them by imposing circumcision as a necessary ritual 
for salvation. You cannot be saved unless you're Jewish. And how do you become Jewish? Circumcision. So, yes, believe in Jesus. However, we got to do this. Paul continues in Galatians 3. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, and there's that word again, until, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law, the old covenant, was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. And here is the transition. This is the transition statement that we're looking for, that I was speaking of at the beginning of the message, from old to new, from law to faith, from death to life, from Moses to Jesus. And this is the transition that they're all having a hard time with. It was tough living in the first century when the gospel turned the world upside down. It caused everything to be changed. And if you don't deal with change very well, it would have been a real difficult, a real difficult life. And it was. The Old Covenant kept Israel, instructed Israel, reminded Israel, tested Israel like a tutor, like a guardian that was responsible for preserving this people for a specific period of time until the coming faith would be revealed, until Christ came. So now that the promised offspring has come, well, the tutor is out of a job. He's not needed anymore. The guardian is now unnecessary. Why? Well, because the new way of salvation by faith in the promised Messiah has arrived. The offspring, with a capital O, promised to Abraham, has now come. And in him, we are all, whether we're Jewish or Gentile, we're all saved in precisely the same manner in which Abraham himself was saved. Abraham said to the Lord, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham is not 30 years old when he says this. He's an old man. And the Lord says to him, you're going to have as many offspring as the stars in the sky. He's, and not only is he old, his wife's, I mean, literally an old lady. How, how is this going to happen? Well, he doesn't know. But it doesn't matter. Because he believed the Lord. It doesn't matter how it happens. God said... This is what I'm going to do. This is my promise to you, and I'm going to keep my promise. And Abraham says, okay. And when Abraham says, okay, God counted that to him as righteousness. He's saved because he believes God. And that's how anybody's ever saved, by believing what God has said. Not by keeping the law. Not by circumcision. Not by being Jewish. Not be, by being able to, to trace your ancestry all the way back to Abraham. If anybody is ever saved, they're saved by believing what God has said. Now the Judaizers may have said, okay, fine. Our father Abraham was certainly not saved by the law of Moses. It didn't even exist until 430 years later. Clearly he was saved by faith, believing the promise God made to him. And for the Judaizers, uh, salvation by faith is not the rub. That's not the problem as far as they're concerned. Here's the problem. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's their problem. That's their problem. You can be a Gentile and be a son of God. And they could not accept it. 
They could not make that transition. They could not leave Moses. They could not turn their backs on the old covenant. All are sons of God through faith, not just Jews, not only the chosen, not just the nation of Israel, but now, now that the Messiah has come, you're saying even Gentiles are included simply by faith in Jesus, completely apart from being Jewish, apart from the law of Moses? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Yes. Hallelujah. Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. Salvation has nothing to do with being Jewish. And all the Gentiles said, Amen, yeah, this is good news for us. He goes on, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There, and he just, man, he's just twisting the knife in the back of the Judaizers with this. He said, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What? What? In the Messiah, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, and I think that third one, male nor female, may have been directed precisely at their insistence upon circumcision. Doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Doesn't matter if you're a slave. Doesn't matter if you're free. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. What matters is, do you believe the promise of God? This is exactly the same thing that Paul says to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Well, what does he mean? What, that phrase, according to the flesh, what's he talking about? He's referring to the way in which the Jews classified men prior to Christ, literally according to the flesh, whether you were circumcised or not. That's what he's talking about. This is how we, this is how we knew who was in and who was out. If you're circumcised, you're in. If you're not, you're out. We used to regard people according to the flesh, but not anymore. In the New Covenant, that is no longer an issue. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anybody, if he's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old era, the old way of thinking, the old way of delineating between God's people and everybody else. That's done. Regardless of whether you're a Jew, Jew or a Gentile, if you're in Christ, now you're neither one of those. You have Jews, you have Gentiles, and you have Christians. And this is the new creation. I think that to, for someone to say that he's a, a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian is a misnomer. You're Christian. Why? Because there's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. There's no, there's no Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There's Christians. That's it. That's the new creation. And a lot of people have interpreted this, this passage to mean, you know, when you come to Christ, uh, you are a new creation, and old things have passed away, and behold, everything is new. Well, that was not my experience when I came to Christ. Not everything was new. One thing in particular was I continued to sin. That's not, that, that's still old. I didn't sin like I used, I, I don't sin like I used to. I mean, that's new, but... I still have to deal with these things. That's not what this passage is teaching. It's teaching that the person who comes to Christ is an entirely different creature in Christ from what they were outside of Christ. It's a new race. Peter states that in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Well, how did this happen? Because the old era, the old covenant is done. The covenant made with Moses is done. Judaism is done. It has passed away. And the new covenant era has begun. And then to put a final word on it, 
Paul gives the slam dunk in Galatians 3, verse 29. Look at what he says. And if you are Christ's, whoever you are, if you're in Christ, then who are you? You are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise that God made to Abraham. You know all those stars that God told Abraham to look up in the sky and see? You know who those stars are? Us. We are those stars. We are those children. We are those offspring that God promised to give to Abraham. If you are Christ, then you are the true Israel. You are Abraham's offspring. And heirs according to the promise. Romans 9, Paul again, he says, as indeed God says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called, oh, brethren, we will be called Sons of the living God. Hallelujah. What, what, what a great salvation is ours in the Lord Jesus. Let me suggest to you, you better be grateful to God that you were not born prior to the cross as a Gentile. Without hope. Without God in the world. But now that the offspring has come, doesn't matter if you're Jewish doesn't matter what kind of Gentile you are. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Him alone is what saves you. You believe the promises of God and God saves you. Christ died for you. You belong to Him. You are the offspring of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You that our salvation is completely dependent upon what you have done for us and not what we must perform for you. We thank you that, that we're not under the law, that we're not under the curse of the law, but we're under the law of Christ and we're given the Holy Spirit and you've written your law in our hearts and you've caused us to believe in the offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus. And it's by faith in Him that you have saved us. We thank you for this great, great Savior and this great, great salvation. And all of Abraham's offspring said, Amen.